welcome to the Truth to Power show and a special um, airing on Potluck Dinner. So today is Friday, March 22nd at 7 p.m. Uh, so welcome, welcome. This show is uh, normally airing on Mondays at 8 a.m., 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. But today is a special episode, as I mentioned. Um, today we're going to have uh, uh, poet Frank LaRue Owen, who is online. Frank Laura Owen's poetry is influenced by diverse sources, including the teachings embedded within dreams, the seasons, the energies of various landscapes, and um, the churning of the diur of the soul's journey, resulting in the poetic path his late teacher referred to as the deep mapping of unseen reality, inner and outer. Welcome, Frank. Hey, hey. So, Thanks yeah. for having me, VJ. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so why don't we start off with a um, little information about yourself and, and the book that you have released, the first book of poetry you have released, The School of Soft Attention. Um, why don't we start a little bit with that and tell us a little bit about yourself and your poetry. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Sorry right. about that. Cut out for a second. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, the first book of poetry, The School of Soft Attention, uh, is published on Homebound Publications. And this is um, a really unique publishing company that uh, the motto of the company is ensuring that the mainstream is not the only stream. Excellent. And yeah. the collective of writers and poets and essayists that make up really a tribe of people um, is focused on the contemplative and the ecological and I would say spiritual in, in some instances. Um, and the book of poetry, the first book, uh, really was in the making for a very long time. I had been writing poetry for probably a decade with no real intent on publishing. Uh, it was more a byproduct of my own practice, a uh, byproduct of studies with a teacher in particular, where poetry was very much a, 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 a portion of the practice, which also involved dream work and also involved a lot of time out on the land in New Mexico. Excellent, excellent. Uh, but at a certain juncture, uh, I had some encouragement from a few different places to put together a collection and to submit it. And so I did, and the rest is history. We're off and running, and um, it's been very well received. And then there's another book coming out uh, in August, and the title of that is The Temple of Warm Harmony. And in some ways, it's a, a continuation of, of certain themes that you find in the first book. But looking more, I would say the first book is more about the individual. And with the second book, we get more into the energies of the collective. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I read The School of Soft Attention. And um, it's a wonderful uh, collection of poems, meditative poems that... Um, <clears throat> really uh, exemplify, I believe, 
the idea that you presented in some of our pre-conversations about um, the need for inner alchemy and, and how that is the foundation upon which uh, any work with the collective is, um, is possible. So if you could talk a little bit about kind of how, how does inner alchemy work with, uh, to form that foundation for um, work with the community, work with social justice or work with echo poetry, echo ecological uh, awareness and all these different themes that you have, you know? Yeah. So well, I, I think what I would say is the ground of all change has to start on the individual level. And uh, there was a time in my life when I was very much an activist and was very active on the Native American scene with treaty rights. And um, there were some things taking place in northern Wisconsin with regard to the Anishinaabe. And some of us were involved with trying to be a, a presence of peace and um, and I will say that there were uh, some individuals who would show up at a scene like that and they were not always bringing a spirit of conflict resolution or dispute mediation or even holding a peaceful presence. Uh, I'm not referring to First Nations people here. And it became very clear to me that until you've done the work on the, the inside, that uh, you're not going to manifest uh, energies that can be alchemical and can be change-making uh, on the outside. <clears throat> uh, some of the theme of what you're describing uh, was modeled very much to me by my late teacher, who, as I mentioned, was uh, someone who lived in New Mexico and was uh, very much a blending of traditions in the sense that she had done training in Zen, but she was also traveling to Chiapas and studying with a curandera and was equally influenced by Asian spirituality as well as Mesoamerican. And so just being in her presence, being with her on the land and working with the methods that she practiced and taught, uh, alchemy was very much at the root of the work. Uh, alchemy of working through one's own impediments, one's own uh, psychological obstacles, uh, some of that being transcending our story, you know. Mm. Um, and so I feel like, you know, looking at the world now and what's happening, it's a profound example of what happens when people don't do their inner work and it's it's a humbling thing to see uh, and so I work with these themes in in both of the books actually uh, and in the second book in particular I deal with the concept of the world of red dust which is an ancient Chinese literary concept that comes out um, of, of ancient China and was influenced by the Taoist and the Chan or Zen tradition. And it's really a metaphor for the world when it falls into a state of imbalance. And so the, the metaphor is this world of red dust. It, the red dust can clog your lungs, can 
block your eyes from seeing the the true nature of reality and uh, can weigh you down. Uh, And so the work at hand, the alchemical work at hand is to, by using methods, contemplative methods, by using poetic methods, retreat, uh, the method of retreat from the world of red dust to gain perspective and to come back to a, a place of centeredness and stabilization. This, this is the work. Mm. And in, in the introduction, you talk a little bit about, um, in the introduction of the book, the school of soft attention, you talk a little bit about, uh, second attention or, uh, holy noticing, uh, how we're yeah. able to see, uh, my understanding was that we're able to see things that otherwise might be dismissed or easily pushed aside. And in this kind of rush to, form a product or uh, an end result. But if you tell us a little bit about what, how that plays in a role with uh, the, sure, sure. well, I think if we're um, really in a, in a contrast of our current state of modernity, uh, what my late teacher used to call modernistas, uh, there's a kind of diseased state Everyone is running at rampant high-velocity states uh, or, or paces, and not to mention the just the onslaught of uh, distractions that occur from, you know, digital devices and, and so forth. Uh, in contrasting that modern state with these traditions that come out of the Far East, uh, but also First Nations, indigenous traditions around the world. Um, There is, uh, in these traditions, there's a long-standing understanding and a long-standing practice for cultivating what is sometimes called second attention or secondary attention or other language that is sometimes put to it is um, non-ordinary states of consciousness. And the essence of it is uh, reality is not one-dimensional. Reality is not just the five senses that we have. There is a great deal more going on than meets the naked human eye. And so these methods, whether we're talking about uh, Zen uh, or what is known as Mo Jiao in the Chinese, silent illumination, uh, it's making time and entering spaces where through quiet sitting, open awareness, really approaching things from a point of view that, that is without agenda, it's allowing the the natural forces themselves to kind of work on us and bring us back into a state of equilibrium. And once that occurs, uh, in my own personal experience, but also I've seen this in groups, that when people are given the opportunity to disconnect from the frenetic energies and rhythms of modernity that this whole other 
dimension of, of deep perception comes back online. It's almost like a, a muscle that has been atrophied, and then as it begins to be worked again, that muscle memory starts to come back into play. And I think we all have this way of perceiving this second attention. I think even as children, we had our own, we may not have had a vocabulary for it, but I think we entered into non-ordinary states of consciousness as children and potentially even had our own qualities of childhood mysticism where we were attuned uh, to nature or the imaginal realm or the dream realm. Uh, and this, you know, to someone who is running around at a rat's pace, uh, those things may not sound like anything worth giving attention or time to, and yet there are whole cultures that are oriented to these dimensions. And there is a, a very sophisticated understanding and knowledge that there is wisdom, there is information to be gleaned, there is even healing uh, to be gleaned by dropping into this um, non-ordinary or second attention. Mm. And uh, traditionally, we seem to think about these traditions and these practices as being, uh, and you draw from this in the book, the hermit poet, or going away from outer, outwardly going away from society and going to a cave or something, or or going to some secluded place and meditating. But um, you seem to draw from that in order to show how we can do it in our daily life, or we can be in the. Uh, there's a quote I believe where you mentioned about um, the person in the town is um, is more or greater than. Can you elaborate a little bit on how uh, the traditional notions of these, these kind of uh, way of thinking versus, uh, you know, modern ways of thinking, like how we can integrate in the hermit poet right. into our daily life, yeah. <clears throat> right, there, yes, there's an old, uh, there, there's a wonderful man named Bill Porter. His uh, Buddhist name is Red Pine, and he's a prolific translator of Chinese texts, various Buddhist texts, uh, but also some poetry. And um, he's where I learned that phrase. It comes from China, and uh, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but the saying is that the, uh, the small hermit lives up in the mountains, but the great hermit lives down in the town. Mm. Because anybody can go into the mountains and be a hermit. It's, it's, uh, it's without distractions. You're you're able to cut off the distraction and, and be up there. Uh, but if you're down in town, if you're down in the uh, the dirty old town, as they say in a Scottish song, it's a little bit more difficult uh, to cultivate those deeper levels of, of consciousness and awareness. Um, and yet it is very possible. There's a whole tradition of Chan or Zen, um, poets in China who these individuals I, I love their poetry but I almost appreciate reading their bios their biographies even more because you get a sense of who they were in their practice a man named David Henton who was also a very prolific translator of Chinese poetry 
usually provides a a pretty extensive biography about the poet uh, in the books that he publishes. And uh, in these instances, we, we've got these poets who have jobs down in the city, uh, but by night they stay to themselves. And their art, their poetry, and their Chan or Zen practice is the focal point of what makes their life click. And some of them even live by a rhythm of uh, once a season they take they would take a retreat and go up into the mountains and then would bring the insights that they gleaned from their practice up in the mountains. They would bring that back down into the city. So, yes, I very much believe that this is uh, something each of us can do if it is, in fact, made a priority. Mm-hmm. And um, also, almost combining with that, or maybe perhaps um, another theme is the warrior's path, or the war, the idea of the warrior being either. Uh, how does that work with the hermit? Uh, the um, the walking the warrior's path. You talk a little bit about um, and being able yeah. to look at that archetype and how it fits in with the hermit. How do you think it fits in with the hermit? Mm. Well, I think all of the the patterns, or you use the word archetype, a good Jungian term, I think all of these things are within us, and I think each of them can be functional maps uh, for deeper exploration and, and potentially uh, guiding us into deeper knowledge about ourselves and or how to show up in the world. My own understanding of the warrior, which is a cross-cultural archetype, we find, of course, the warrior in uh, the Celtic tradition and King Arthur. We find the warrior archetype among the samurai of Japan. We find the warrior, you know, with the stories of Crazy Horse and, and so forth among the Lakota. But even the, you know, the archetype of the uh, caballero or the cowboy, there's a warrior archetype there as well. But um, I really, uh, my association with it is also influenced by the writings of Chogyam Trungpa, who talks about the warrior in his book, uh, Shambhala, uh, The Sacred Path of the Warrior. And in this sense, this is not someone who makes war. Um in the Tibetan language, it's pawo. It means it's one who is brave. And so the warrior archetype in, in the context of spiritual practice is someone who uh, is working consistently to address their own fears and to move from a place of fear to fearlessness uh, and also to cultivate those skills, those ways of showing up uh, that are needed in the context of the times that they live in. And I would say that this is also a mandate of poets. Mm. Uh, getting back to your your discussion about activism and, and social activism is I think that um, this is something else that poetry takes up 
and we and we find this as well in the the Chinese and Japanese traditions of of poetry. You find uh, certain individuals who who don't hold their tongue, you know, um, like Ikkyu in the Japanese tradition, who would um, openly call out the men of his time as as being corrupt and warmongers, or he would take on the institutionalized corruption of of certain expressions of Buddhism uh, in that particular era of of Japan. Uh, so that to me is is one expression of the warrior archetype, but done in a creative and a contemplatively informed uh, way. Yeah, it seems so we easy see this for even us today in the present day. The the um, the activist, artist, poet, uh, Ai Weiwei, uh, you know, he is he is an astonishing human being who's you know been imprisoned and tortured by the Chinese government and had his family threatened and so forth. And yet he doesn't bend. Uh, <laughs> he uh, he keeps he keeps ratcheting up his his statements uh, in that country about human rights and, and so forth. And so I very much view that also as I, I view him as an expression of that uh, creative warrior archetype. Yeah, it seems so easy for us to uh, continue to look outward. But I think what I'm getting from this conversation from your work and, and from the, um, the vibe uh, is that we want to combine the inner work with the outer work and be able to balance yep. the two so that then we're able to uh, see that there's, um, you, you'd written a little bit about how there's uh, no individual self, that we're all interconnected. And this interconnected interdependence is uh, the primary foundation upon the pivot upon which we found, um, you know, this inner work so that then we can realize that the, uh, the sea of interconnectedness between all of us, that yep. how we got to the ultimately the outer work, you know, if you talk a little bit about how that interconnectedness might inform this work. Yeah. Well, both are needed. And, you know, as I think that if, if we're only focused on one's inner work and it isn't ever applied, then it's really, it's a form of navel gazing and, uh, you know, there's an old, there's an old Native American expression that uh, if if it doesn't grow corn, then what good is it? You know, uh, I think that there's a sense of um, needing to make the spiritual or the psychological practical. Um, I'm I'm reminded in this moment of the work of a man named Arnold Mendel. Uh, he and his wife, Amy Mandel, um, and I view them as a very uh, exemplary example of this, of, of what you're talking about, of fusing the inner and the outer, bringing the, the inner insights, the inner, the deep inner work, and bringing it to the street. Um, you know, they're, they're innovators of something called process-oriented psychology. Uh, he sometimes calls it dream body work. Um, but their work starts very slow and their work starts very inward, uh, 
and yet when you look at the culmination of their work in the world it has resulted in them getting large groups of Palestinians and Israelis together in a room to work what is a collective conflict they've gone to Northern Ireland and done the same thing with Irish and uh, Irish Catholics and British Protestants that are in the the northern province there uh, they've gone to Africa even where there were warring tribes and have essentially facilitated deep dream work with these tribes that were caught in a nightmare uh, and the entry point was the inner work but the translation of that is very much shifting entire collectives into a, a new dream mm. with one another. It's yeah. master work. Yeah. It really is. So uh, just for my listeners, this is the Truth to Power show on a special slot on Friday, March 22nd. Um, I'm VJR Nathan. I'm here with uh, Frank Rue Owen, author of The School of Soft Detention. Uh, and upcoming uh, books this coming summer. So why don't we get a moment to listen to a few of your poems? Um, have you, uh, if you'd like to select something, I think one of your poems was nominated for the Push Card, correct? Um, yes. Yeah. Prize, yeah. Why, yes. if you um, get a moment to pull that one up, if you can. And then, out of the um, out of the first book, the School of Soft Attention, uh-huh. uh, the title of it is uh, the Bouquet of the Last Direction. And, you know, just a little preface to this, uh, I think there's, uh, there are times in all of our lives when we enter some dark terrain. Um, Jung sometimes called this the night sea voyage or uh, St. John of the Cross referred to it as the dark night of the soul. And... Speaking of inner work, uh, you know, outwardly, nothing may look different, but on the inner levels of a human being who's going through this, um, it's it's uh, rather like a hellish state of consciousness. And then there comes a point where the person reaches the other side, and. Um, this is about reaching the other side. The bouquet of the last direction. When the soul becomes unburdened, it's like a new saddle on a fresh horse. Suddenly, the trail feels right again, and the strong horizon line in front of you as you turn becomes its own form of soothing medicine. Something of the sting and burn of the old poison may linger, but having crossed over from the shadow lands into new open territory, one can almost pick up the scent of blooming flowers within. You start to notice all the things you hadn't been, all because you'd been so bound up with the echoes of losses and hauntings. You know you're ready 
when ghosts start chanting from the edge of your life. Traveler, good traveler, your crying for a vision time is over. Time to re-inhabit the human world. Then the simplest of the 10,000 things start to reach out to you to welcome you home again. The morning star, the blue sky with its utter completeness, the serrated clouds coming over the rising pine-covered hills. Even the food tastes better in the land of the great eastern sun. You may find the wandering wild animal of your heart is somehow more free to travel back through time, to pick back up with sources of beauty and power you had put down. And maybe, just maybe, you'll see yourself now through your childhood eyes, and you'll stand forgiven and realize the magic you had then never left you. You just forgot how to listen. Thank you, thank you. So this also reminds listeners that you had a uh, uh, history in the in the um, American uh, South South uh, where you grew up with cowboys and and in that tradition. Um, if you tell a little bit how that influenced you and and how that uh, the cowboy aesthetic uh, works its way into your poetry or in your personal uh, histories. Well, uh, I was talking about this with somebody recently i don't i don't consider myself a cowboy for sure i in in my family that means a very precise thing and it's someone who raises cattle or raises horses um and uh but i I do come from a family that has that heritage um you go back a few generations and and our ancestors were lawmen they were sheriffs um, and, you know, when I was coming along, I grew up, uh, at least a portion of my childhood was in San Antonio, Texas, and some of it was in Mississippi. And I think about, uh, you know, in my preteen years, I began this process of distancing myself from family wanting, I think that's normal, the individuation process. Uh, And part of that time in my life, it was fueled by a desire to get out and see the world and also explore other cultures. Uh, I've always been, uh, I think, a closet cultural anthropologist uh, in fact, I, I've, I always wanted to be Indiana Jones <laughs> when yeah. I was growing up. Uh, and so this whole thing about going out, out, out into the world, out into other cultures, and, and I did that for 30 years. I, I spent a lot of time with indigenous people of North, Central, and South America, and um, and then you know, trained in Aikido and studied Zen, and, and it was all about absorbing what I could from these other cultures and 
lately, and it's really been since my grandparents passed away, I've begun turning my eyes back toward my own family or toward my own ancestral heritage and, and looking into that. Um, I really began that process probably in the late 90s, looking into uh, some of our Celtic roots, some of our Scandinavian roots. Uh, but even that, even looking into the Scottish and the Irish and the Welsh strains of our family or the, the Danish, even that in a certain way was looking out into other cultures because, of course, I wasn't raised in those cultures or traditions. Lately, I've been looking back and realizing there is a uh, a spiritual richness. There's also a creative richness in the family that I come from. Uh, in fact, one of one of our ancestors was uh, a prolific poet in in Texas. Uh, she was even the poet laureate, I think, of of a certain town. <clears throat> And I've been reading her poetry, and and you can you can feel the cowboy spirit is is in some of her writings, and it's you know my my grandfather was we all called him the old cowboy. Um, he would never be caught without his boots or his stetson. <laughs> uh, and so what I've become fascinated by is that some of the same attributes that I was drawn to among indigenous cultures or even among the the Chinese and Japanese spiritual traditions and poetic traditions that we've been talking about, which are characterized by a love of nature, a love of the land. Uh, this, is, this is also part of... Uh, the this I think the the best attributes of what we might call cowboy culture. Mm. And one of the, to return to uh, the primary um, in the book uh, School of Soft Attention, you mention a a quote from uh, Master Basho, um, who is a um, uh, ancient uh, Buddhist master, where you say, um, "Seek not the paths of the ancients." seek that which the ancients sought. So perhaps that could also be about the cowboy side, seeking out the path of the cowboy, but what the cowboy saw and how these uh, traditions and our heritage and our ancestors are seeking something and we're looking for what they they were seeking. How would you uh, bring that together? Yeah. Well, I think that uh, for me, I've benefited a great deal by considering the practices and the maps of, of other peoples and cultures. And that, that investigation began at a very young age in my preteens. I remember wandering into my father's study um, and he had all sorts of books as, as did my mother. Uh, and pulling a book off the shelf entitled Black Elk Speaks and that was my first exposure to another culture's cosmology and worldview and way of relating to nature and really set a spark which uh, 
sent me down many, many tributaries uh, of investigation. But I, I think when I look back from where I stand now, I realize that while that is valuable, the original call to those things was already in me. Uh, so that the yeah, Basho's notion of, of um, I think it's about owning one's own native intelligence. And I don't mean that in, in the sense of Native American. I mean that in, in the sense of our own inborn qualities, um, which I think is why I was drawn eventually to Zen in reading uh, Shunru Suzuki's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Mm. Uh, it, it immediately put me back on myself rather than seeking that with the ancients or seeking that in in another culture. It's really embodying one's own uh, your one's own search for what is already within oneself. Mm. And uh, I understand um, one of the influences the Pure Land tradition. If you tell us a little bit about uh, I'm, I'm kind. Of, I have some familiarity with Pure Land, but uh, what, what do you think uh, is the? Um, if you tell us a little bit about the background of Pure Land and how it relates to the, your influences. Yeah. Um, this really gets into some of the way that that my late teacher worked and how she was informed by diverse influences. And uh, with regard to Pure Land, there is a cosmology in that tradition. And of course, there's lots of different interpretation of this. Uh, some Pure Land Buddhists, when they talk about the Pure Land or Sukhavati in Sanskrit, uh, it is a it is a realm. It is a place off to the west that um, practitioners aspire to go to at the time of death. Mm. Um, I'm not exactly sure what she believed about this, but I do know that she would often quote the writings of Thich Nhat Hanh. He has a book where he talks about the Pure Land. Uh, as being right here, right now. Mm. So for her, I think that's more what she gravitated toward, which was that um, that this was not something that was to be delayed. It was more of the notion of being enlightened in this very body, in this very life, um, and that when that shift occurs in a person, it doesn't mean that uh, the person doesn't still experience pain or grief uh, from various things that occur, but or, or just you know the daily grind that that affects us all. Uh, but there is a transcending of the unnecessary suffering. And 
the transcending of the unnecessary suffering, at least in the way that she spoke of these things, that's the pure land. Um, and that that was, that is a very much a state, uh, although that's probably not the best word. It's more of a stage, I think, a stage of, of development that is possible, that's accessible. Um, I also seem to agree or I seem to gravitate towards the idea that, um, you know, when we think about samsara, when we think about the endless cycle of suffering, when we think about nirvana, we think about you know, the attainment of pure seeing or the ability to, um, to uh, they're very much interrelated. And these two states are really flips, flip sides of the same coin where we can, when we change our perspective, we can then be able to inhabit these stages or or realms, or you know, inner realms rather. In my perspectives, right. these inner realms are these glasses we can put on to be able to see the world through these lenses. We think about you know these uh, rose-colored glasses and seeing with the taint, uh, the tint, um, uh, you know, yeah. whether it be a taint or in the samsaric or a tint in the neuronic. Um, what do you think about that, and how does that how does that play into your uh, what you were saying? Yeah, it's, um, I don't know what comes up for me there is, is going back to even this word enlightenment that people throw around. Um, I've just never related to it as a fixed state, as something that occurs and and then there's no more work to do. Uh, it's more that it's an ongoing process of, rather than enlightenment, which is an arrived at state, it, it feels more like enlightening. Yeah. And I relate to that more as lightening the load uh, <laughs> uh, or trying to to grow the light in oneself, to uh, illuminate the, the dark corners that need to be uh, explored and purified and, and then kind of an offloading of, of the weight that prevents us from experiencing life in that joyful, transcendent um, and it's certainly, you know, again, we get into this this dichotomy of, of some of this can start to sound like navel-gazing that isn't paying attention to what's actually going on in the world. But mm. in actuality, I feel like we have to be doing that offloading and that enlightening work within ourselves to be able to face what's happening. Yeah. And one of the questions that we were talking about Prior was about um, if the world were the way we wanted it to be, uh, how would all of us be? How would the society look or act? Um, and you know, there may not be any one particular way, but one path. You know, I think we have to have an, an, as a society, as a, as a group, we have to have some vision for right. where we're even going, and we can't always be about you know, this is about me, it's about me, or about us, but rather looking about us, at, you know, there's some point where we have to think about 
well, what's the image or, or picture of society we want to create for all of us? And um, mm-hmm. if you take a crack at that, uh, just to see, you know, how does this uh, inner outer work translate to a functional model? Right. If it does, yeah. Yeah, where I really fall these days um, is it's sort of the I'm I'm feeling a lot around your your statement and your question. Um, For me, it's really about a reverence, and and regardless of the differences that the differences of culture or religion or politics or whatever, um, it feels like there is no workable situation unless that sense of reverence is present. Mm. And believe me, when I say some of the things going on in this country, politically, environmentally, um, and even with regard to this this country's relationship to its first peoples, um, and how certain things are are still going on, it's like we haven't learned from history. Uh, the common denominator for that dimension of strife is, and, and what really gets me worked up is, it's the lack of reverence. Mm. And I feel like if the if if there is a reverence that's reinfused in the dialogue, whatever the dialogue is, that this is where suddenly things become a workable situation. Um, and I know that, that for some years that may sound like kind of a, a pie-eyed or, you know, Cinderella vision of, well, yeah, right, a world where everyone approaches things from a place of reverence. But it's, it's almost like it has to be an experiment. Mm. Try it and see if it doesn't change things. Mm. Uh, we know what it, we know what we get when that's not present. Mm. We already know clearly all we have to do is crack open a history book of the, the history of the United States. And we see these cycles that repeat when the, the, this nation forgets any sense of reverence. Yeah. And, and I then, think, and I think it should be yeah, noted that this reverence uh, is not just an outer appearance. It's also that inner appearance of real, mm-hmm. truly connected. It's, it's easy for us to, at least in, in my vision or my mental continuum, I think about, you know, mass and I think about the the rituals and I think of that as being reverence. But, and that's one outward expression of reverence, uh, I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having the austerity of uh, singing and hymns and and prayers and rituals and chanting is one outward expression of reverence, perhaps, but that inner right. reverence is more important, would you say? 
Yes, yes, and that's that's what I'm getting at is the it's the sense of um, being able to acknowledge the humanity in the other uh, in a way that I think gets lost. Right, it seems to me that it's been lost in a lot of corners right now, and it's it really is that that consciousness of you know the the namaste or as they say in the Mayan culture the in in lakesh alakain I am another you you are another me uh, this mirroring quality and yes there's differences but uh, I have a fundamental I feel a fundamental reverence for you. You know, it's that framework, that footing. Mm. Yeah, it's so easy to otherize and and create distance uh, between our, ourselves and our and our communities and and our fellow neighbors, mm. rather than uh, bridges and forming bridges between us and our neighbors, and seeing how those commonality points and and focusing on them so that then we can find a, a conversation. You know? Yes, very much so. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's a really great uh, point. Uh, and then uh, we talked a little bit about uh, how um, in metaphors, how the interconnectedness that, you know, a lot of times we think about these things in terms of metaphors, but, um, you know, balancing the language with the reality uh, some things can right. can only be point can be pointed towards something have to be experienced. Yeah, can we tell mm. a little bit about that. How you know uh, your understanding of the difference between just you know pointing towards something. It's easy to get caught up in the language of the of the metaphor rather than the experience itself. You know, would you say? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I get really nuts and bolts and practical about this. Uh, because I actually think we're on a trajectory where talking about the inner and the outer work, I think as individuals, as, as communities, and then as whole nation states, if, if we don't do that inner work of cultivating reverential collaboration to solve mutual difficulties, mutual problems. Uh, I actually think that we're on a trajectory where we're going to be forced to, uh, and I mean that ecologically, I mean that economically. Uh, I read a book a couple summers ago. It's it's an older book, but it still holds its weight. And the title, it's on Sierra Club Books, I believe, and it's, uh, my name is Chellis Glendening, and I am in recovery from Western civilization. <laughs> it's a powerful book um, that really goes at the heart of some of the difficulties that I think undergird a lot of the things we're seeing right now. And the fundamental essence of it is addiction. It's addiction to gluttony. It's an addiction to uh, lifestyles of, of decadence. And, and it's frankly just not sustainable for the long run. 
and uh, you know it's it's amazing to hear there's a man named Oren Lyons. He's uh, he's a member of the Haudenosaunee, which is the uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, he, and, and specifically he's a member of the Onondaga people. And you can go on YouTube and look up Oren Lyons, O-R-E-N-L-Y-O-N-S, and hear him talk about the the principle among the the people up there of the seven generations. And so it's it's essentially a mindful consideration of every decision that they make. They take into account how will this action affect the next seven generations yet unborn. And uh, that's reverence. Mm. (laughs) That's looking past one's own nose. You know, that's looking past next week's or next year's vacation or Mm. one's uh, 401k or that's vision. That's that's looking at, you know, are we leaving things in a better state than we found them? Uh, mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. So you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, uh, the Truth to Power show on a special time slot um, in the uh, Pollock dinner slot. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, the uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate, or consider uh, sponsoring the Truth to Power show at radioforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power under the sponsor this show link. Every cent helps us to continue to stay on air, so please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Ready for Brooklyn is proud to announce that we, be, we are launching an after-school program for local teens in 2019 to help learn media literacy and media making using a hands-on approach guided by local professionals. If you'd be interested in participating or donating to this program, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash after-school. And once again, all donations are tax deductible. Uh, finally, um, General Communications, you can listen to uh, the um, uh, show on the go. If you're listening to it on a computer, you can free yourself up by listening to our free mobile apps for iPhone and Android by going to radioforbrooklyn.org slash iPhone or slash Android. And finally, uh, stay up to date on our events by going to radioforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. And you can uh, find out about upcoming events, uh, new programming, etc. Um Thank you so much for being here. I'm playing a little bit of uh, the um, the song you suggested. Um, what was the name of it again? It was I'm not pulling up the name. Frank. Yes. Uh, the name of that song that you, the song we're playing. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I think it was one. Of the, I think it was the one on your website as well. But anyway, uh, I'll I'll post it on the. Potomatic uh, link. I'll post the title, title of the uh, song in the Potomatic link. So go to truth to power show.potomatic.com 
when the show gets archived in about a week or so, um, listeners can uh, look at the link and find out the name of the song. Um, and uh, as we start to wind down, thank you so much for uh, uh, being here. And um, if you have any last words for, for patrons, for listeners to go to your websites or anything you're doing. Sure. The, uh, the website is purelandpoetry.com. And uh, I'm currently in a little bit of a, a low uh, with content, but uh, probably in about a month there will be more appearing there. Great. Thanks so much. And listeners can enjoy the song. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, VJ. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.